It's June 1995. More than 40,000 people are now trapped inside the Muslim enclave of Srebrenica. The mountain town that was once home to only a few thousand is slowly being strangled by three years of war. There are shrapnel and bullet holes on the sides of houses and people are living in buildings without windows or roofs. As we heard in the previous episode, MSF has been working in the enclave for just over two years now and has repeatedly informed the media about the difficulties it's been having trying to get supplies, medicine and even volunteers inside. Total bureaucracy. We needed a clearance for the lorry and one for the driver and one for the person accompanying the delivery, one for the medicines we were transporting and one for the day. We had almost nothing on shelves. We had no fuel. We could not even sustain our own team inside. The purpose was to put the population under an extreme pressure, but not to the point of creating an epidemic, an outbreak or a famine. Many MSF staff working there are starting to feel like prison doctors. As the constant shelling by the Bosnian Serb forces gets heavier, people are afraid to be on the streets. There's hardly any clean water and the sanitation is nearly non-existent. Food and medical relief convoys from the outside world are few and far between, and most are turned back or looted by the Bosnian Serb army who guard the besieged city. Right now, at the start of summer, only 30% of the food needed to feed such a large population is being allowed through. At the hospital compound in the north of the enclave, there are three Médecins Sans Frontières international staff supporting the local staff. More injured and sick patients are arriving every day, and they're running out of medication and supplies. The Serbs not only control the food and aid, they also control the number of MSF staff working in the enclave. At the end of June, only two people are allowed to take over. Dr. Daniel O'Brien and nurse and field manager Christina Schmitz. I remember while arriving at a checkpoint, the Serbian checkpoint and then the UN checkpoint and then walking into Srebrenica. It felt like a door closed behind me and it felt, and that's what people in Srebrenica said later on, they were locked in. And people felt very, people felt desperate because the concept of the enclave, what was the future, what was the exit strategy? Nobody really knew what was going to come. And would they really be protected like General Morillon promised in 93? As eyewitnesses to the siege of Srebrenica, MSF has been speaking out since the first team arrived there in March 1993. Now, under extraordinary pressure, they continue. I'm Nick Owen from MSF, and in this episode, I'm going to take you day by day through the terrible events of July 1995 and the fall of Srebrenica. We'll look at what decisions were made by the international community at the UN and within MSF, and explore the mechanisms MSF put in place so that they could speak out. We'll also examine whether the organisation should have trusted Umprefor's ability to protect this safe zone. And having done so, should MSF accept partial culpability for, or even complicity in, the UN's abandonment of the enclave and the massacre of its population? This is Médecins Sans Frontières speaking out, Srebrenica. Today, we say enough. Even war has rules. Stop the bombing. 
of defenseless civilians in Chechnya. It will be a scientific uh, research for that. We know that those people are dying. Episode 3. The fall of the so-called safe zone. In recent weeks, the population inside Srebrenica and the other so-called safe zones have been feeling less and less protected. Just the month before, Bosnian Serb forces made a particularly deadly attack on the capital, Sarajevo. 400,000 people are living there under siege, and the UN decides to retaliate with NATO airstrikes. The Serbs immediately fight back by bombing Srebrenica and the enclaves of Tuzla, Gorazde and Bihać. They also take nearly 170 Blue Helmet peacekeepers hostage to use as human shields and discourage further strikes. The last group of hostages are freed within the month. But behind the scenes there are rumours of secret deals between the Serbs and the newly appointed French commander of the Umprafor peacekeepers, General Bernard Janvier. The New York Times reports France negotiated for the release of United Nations soldiers taken hostage by the Bosnian Serbs, even as the United Nations and Western governments were insisting that their release must be unconditional. In return for the release of the United Nations soldiers, which included many French troops, the Bosnian Serbs apparently received assurances that NATO warplanes would not make further airstrikes on Serb positions. Another part of the deal seems to have opened the way for long-stalled deliveries of food to besieged Muslim enclaves. The official said General Bernard Janvier, the French commander of United Nations forces in the former Yugoslavia, twice met secretly with General Radko Mladic, the commander of the Bosnian Serbs, during the hostage crisis. The French deny bargaining with the Serbs, but it's an accusation that comes back to haunt General Janvier again and again over the coming years. It's early July 1995, and Christina Schmitz and Daniel O'Brien have been working in Srebrenica for nearly two weeks. The situation there is bleak. The armed forces are making movements in and around the enclave, and MSF suspects the fighting is about to start up again. Then, just after midnight, on Thursday the 6th of July, it begins. Christina and Daniel are woken by two huge explosions inside the city. Along with the local staff, they run to the bomb shelter. The shelling continues all day, and by evening, 13 wounded people have been brought into the hospital and four people have died. The hospital staff believe many more are injured. Unprefor's Dutch battalion stationed in Srebrenica is put on red alert, the highest level in the forces alert system. On the 7th of July, Bosnian Serb tanks bomb the streets of Srebrenica. The MSF team's situation report, or SITREP for that day, talks of a drastic change of the security situation. The last two days of this week, the hospital was overwhelmed with war-injured patients. The staff have been working almost around the clock and are functioning very well in these difficult circumstances. But it is also very obvious that the workload, especially for the local surgeon, is too much. Saturday, 8th of July few shells during the night. The surgeon we trained is on the edge of a breakdown so we urgently need our new expat surgeon. The morning was quiet, heavy shelling again since lunchtime, sometimes more than one shell per minute. 
The Bosnian Serb army has taken observation post Foxtrot and blown it up. One Dutch blue helmet got killed. A report in the French newspaper Le Monde updates those outside the enclave on the latest in eastern Bosnia. General Janvier, commander of UN forces in the former Yugoslavia, requested NATO air support on Sunday the 9th of July in response to the offensive by Bosnian Serbs against the Muslim enclave of Srebrenica in the eastern part of the country. This support could lead to airstrikes if the Serbian forces resume their advance, which they seem to have ended Monday morning. Despite General Janvier's request, no air support arrives from NATO on the 9th of July and the Dutch Blue Helmets are putting up no visible opposition to the approaching Serbs. But no one tells Christina and Daniel up at the hospital. Instead, they work through another night into July 10th. Sitrep. At 7am, the hospital is again totally overcrowded. Everywhere screaming and crying people between the wounded and bleeding. Our car and the garbage truck are going back into the centre, hopefully not returning with more wounded. On the BBC, we hear that the Bosnian Serb army denies the offensive. How cynical to hear this. Around 10.30, a shell falls opposite the hospital's road. Fortunately, we are both in the bunker, but we are horrified by the noise and the fact that now the hospital is a target as well. Briefly afterwards, another shell, a bit further away. Windows are broken in the pharmacy and in the hospital. UN Logistics offer help for fixing the windows. What a sign of helplessness. Another UN informs us that, despite some shelling, the situation in the enclave is stable. Well, difficult to believe. The leader of the Bosnian Serb army, General Ratko Mladic, gives the Dutch Blue Helmets an ultimatum to start evacuating people from the enclave the next morning. They want everyone out. The Bosniaks, Dutch Bat, MSF, everyone. UN and Dutch officials threaten NATO airstrikes. People are increasingly afraid in the city, and rumours spread that nearby villages are being burned down. MSF issues a press release, calling for medical facilities and personnel to be spared during the fighting. Sitrep. In the evening, people start to leave the centre, gathering around the hospital compound. All medical staff with family enter our shelter. Eventually, the Bosniak army pushed the population back into their homes in the centre. The medical staff in our bunker, however, want to have a solution and refuse to leave our shelter until then. They express their despair, their tiredness and their wish to leave their prison and to live in freedom. All our sympathy is with them and we don't much mind their blackmailing. It takes a long time and much energy to convince them that it is not possible to sleep with approximately 80 people in our small shelter. Finally, they move into the hospital. MSF nurse Christina Schmitz. On 11th of July, after these five days of heavy, heavy shelling, it was relatively quiet in the morning and I thought things get better. But then we realized that part of the population had fled to Potocari, the UN bases, five kilometers outside of the main city. The local doctors had asked us or had informed us that they would transport the patients to Potocari, the basis of the UN, with a big part of the population, whilst maybe half of the remaining population fled as well to Potocari. We realized this, that the enclave was empty. What to do? So 
Daniel and myself and the national staff who were still with us packed the remaining patients from the hospital into our cars and fled as well to Potocari. The blue helmets were present in Potocari where the population was sitting and waiting for what was going to happen. Then things happened very quickly. At Srebrenica Hospital, the local surgeon and his wife decide to take their own chances and leave Potocari. They join the thousands of people, mainly men, who've already set off through the forest towards the neighbouring enclave of Tuzla, 100 kilometres to the north. But it's a very risky journey. In the early afternoon, NATO warplanes conduct two airstrikes on Bosnian Serb tanks and authorization is requested for a third strike. By now, there are thousands of displaced people in Potocari. Dutch Bat agreed to shelter 5,000 inside their UN base. Later in the day, Christina and some of the local staff visit those trapped in the makeshift camp outside. Sitrep. Approximately 20,000 people are seeking shelter around some destroyed buildings, trying to escape from the continuing shelling. They are shivering from the noise. We are distributing towels, blankets, soap and buckets from our store in Potichari to the patients, and plastic sheeting for the displaced population inside. Yinprafor is trying to declare Potichari as a safe haven again. As central Srebrenica empties, Christina and Daniel are in constant contact with the general coordinator at MSF headquarters in Belgrade, Stefan Oberreit. They update him regularly on the situation they see developing in front of them. On the 11th of July, the joint French-Belgian team decides to put out two press releases. In them, they describe the chaos and precarious situation in the enclave and condemn the UN's inability to protect Srebrenica's civilians. They also call for a ceasefire and denounce the violation of the safe area by the Bosnian Serb troops. But not everyone at MSF is happy about the timing or the content of the releases. Yesterday afternoon, MSF Holland received your press statement about Srebrenica. We regret you have done it in this way. We could have given you much more support in this. Moreover, this statement is not in line with previous agreements about cooperation between the sections. MSF Holland thinks a joint statement would have created more of an impact on the Dutch public, which, in turn, would have pressurised their politicians and ultimately the UN. In the end, MSF Holland publishes its own press release. The Dutch Defence Minister cancels the third NATO airstrike that evening under public pressure to protect the lives of the Dutch peacekeepers being held hostage by the Serbs in the region. But it's not an easy decision to make. The next morning, Bosnian Serb forces threaten to bomb civilians fleeing Srebrenica if NATO carries out any more airstrikes. They also want the Bosniak fighters to hand over their weapons in exchange for guaranteeing the safety of the displaced people. Christina is at the makeshift camp at Potocari. Sidrep, 12th of July. The displaced are very weak and apathetic after their night outside. However, I am not able to offer assistance because at 9.45 shelling starts again. Three to four fall in the next 15 minutes. Bosnian Serb army tries to enter the enclave with the tanks at Yellow Bridge. Yinpafor tries to set up a human blockade. Situation in Daniel's hospital remains fragile in terms of necessary medicines. Fluids, antibiotics, analgesics and dressing materials are scarce. 
It is not until later in the morning that Dutch Bat decides to switch to the non-combat situation and offer all medical facilities and drugs they have. From that moment, we no longer lack any necessary drugs. The medical local staff is very difficult to motivate because their families are still outside. Then we are informed that the Bosnian Serb army in Mladic will start the evacuation of the wounded to Brautenac football stadium, followed by the civilians. I try to talk to Mladic and to protest against the planned evacuation, but he just tells me to do my job and walks away. Then the moment arrives that everyone's been dreading. The Bosnian Serb forces enter the camp at Potocari. The base is immediately captured without any resistance from the Dutch Blue Helmets. Around three in the afternoon, thousands of women, children and elderly people are piled into buses and trucks at incredible speed. Please be very patient. Those who wish to stay may stay. The Bosnian Serb commander, General Ratko Mladic, is supervising. Those who wish to leave may leave too. We have organized a sufficient number of cars and lorries and you'll be transferred to Kladai, to Muslim territory. You don't have to be afraid of anything, he tells Bosnian Serb television cameras at the scene. Srebrenica is free now. Sitrep. Most of the men are being separated and taken to a house being guarded by many members of the Bosnian Serb army with German dogs. Around this house, we hear a lot of small arms fire. A few hours later, at six o'clock, the UN starts up its first medical convoy. It is very chaotic. Everybody wants to take their chance. People just jump on the trucks. Relatives have had to leave their family members. After that, I'm able to return to the camp outside. Maladic accepts that I want to pick up wounded and sick people. There are two water trucks offering drinking water for the displaced population who are forced to spend their second night outside. On the other side of Europe, MSF Belgium holds a press conference in Brussels. In it, they give a first-hand account of the capture of the Umprefor base at Potocari. At the UN in New York, the Security Council unanimously adopts Resolution 10-4. It calls for the Bosnian Serb forces to end their offensive and for all parties to give aid organisations free access to the safe area. But many are unconvinced by both the power of the UN resolution and the assurances from Mladic. And judging by some UN observers and political leaders' comments, Srebrenica doesn't seem to be high on the agenda anymore. Some are even talking about withdrawing the Umprefor troops altogether. MSF Holland's General Director, Jacques de Miliano, that day on Wednesday 12th of July, I had a call from uh, my uh, two uh, colleague directors in uh, France and Belgium, and they were very um, alarmed by the situation in Srebrenica because Srebrenica was falling, but they said that buses were prepared to transport people and that women and children and men were separated. So they had a very bad feeling and they called me because they knew that also in Holland and in Hague the members of parliament would meet in the next hours and they wanted to see if I could intervene somewhere. So immediately I tried to mobilize the members of parliament in Den Hague. So I called them because there was a meeting scheduled by the Minister of Defence 
concerning the, the fall of Srebrenica and the position of Dutch bet. And I called some members of parliament to ask them to put the protection of the population on the agenda. So that was in the morning. I took a taxi. I was there half an hour, 45 minutes later. I was in Den Haag. And the meeting was already uh, finished. So I was very, very, let's say, impressed by such a short meetings because it was a major event. So I asked the member of parliament what has happened. And they said, and that was literally what they said, we didn't want to uh, put the issue of protection on the agenda because there are family members of soldiers in the room. And this would have given a, a, a bad impression that we were more concerned about, let's say, the people there than about our own soldiers. So politically, we couldn't do that. So I was really, yeah, I was really shocked. Sitrep, 13th of July. At 7 a.m., the evacuation of the displaced people is continuing from the camp outside. Blue helmets are controlling the desperate crowd. Everybody who could have stopped this mass exodus should be forced to feel the panic and desperation of the people, leaving even their belongings behind that they managed to bring to Potocari. Everybody should see the violence on the faces of the Bosnian Serb army, directing the people like animals to the buses. Children are screaming in the arms of their mothers. Everybody runs for his or her life into an uncertain future. Christina Schmitz. One of the situations I will never forget is on 13 July, I was among the displaced and still looking for patients. And a young Muslim father came towards me with his maybe one-year-old daughter on his arm, followed by a heavily armed Bosnian Serb soldier. And although not understanding the father, I did understand. He had wanted to give me his child because he knew what was going to happen to him. And he had, he had nobody to take care for his child. So he gave it to me and he left. And, oh God. In this moment I realized that this was a moment where a father was being separated from his child. And indeed he had been discovered later on in a mass grave. Irma, that was the name of the little girl, remained with us with the patients. The nursing staff and patients who can walk are being evacuated, but the men continue to be held separately. The MSF team hears more gunshots from the building where the men are being kept. They send a message via satellite phone to MSF Belgrade. There are rumours that at the back of the camp there are dead bodies. BSA is happy for me to go with a UN military observer, but they don't want to give me any guarantee of security. Anyway, I don't think I should go. Too risky. Not confirmed. Not clear where the dead bodies are. What is your opinion? Both MSF and the UN are openly expressing their concern about the fate of the Enclave's men in the media. UN officials condemn what they call odious acts and ethnic cleansing. An article in Le Monde reads, A number of witnesses report that the Serbs subjected the population to a selection process before expelling them. Médecins Sans Frontières, for example, explains that the men were taken separately to offices where they had to identify themselves. Some of them have already been transported by truck to unknown destinations. 
The scenes of them being loaded on the buses were terrifying. People were screaming and panicking, report the on-site MSF representatives. The UN says that General Mladic ordered a selection of all men over the age of 16, who were then assembled in the football stadium in the small town of Brautenac along the border with Serbia. MSF issues an appeal for food and water for the 20,000 refugees who've now arrived in Tuzla, where the MSF teams are working hard to help the population. The Muslim women and children who were forced onto the buses at Potichari show visible signs of abuse when they arrive. The organisation calls for the International Committee of the Red Cross to be authorised to monitor the transfer of refugees. It's now the 14th of July. In Potichari, the MSF teams are busy organising a proper evacuation of the last remaining patients, as well as trying to sort out their own departure from the enclave. Progress is slow because there are so many players involved, not least the Bosnian Serbs. They're insisting on checking among the patients for Bosniak fighters, who they suspect are trying to slip out. The MSF Srebrenica team sends a satellite message to Stefan Oberite in Belgrade. Stefan, should MSF at this stage not be more involved in the whole procedure of evacuation? Should it not be MSF who requests the International Committee of the Red Cross together in cooperation with the UN? Please advise. Please keep in mind the 30 trucks of UNHCR. Could they not do it? I think the priority is to get the patients out soon. If it takes too long, BSA might take the job over. We have seen how fast they have deported the whole population and nobody was able to stop it. They want to empty the enclave. It is not clear what will happen with Dutch Bat afterwards. The MSF programme managers are worried about the safety of the MSF staff if Dutch Bat have to withdraw quickly from the Srebrenica enclave. They're particularly concerned about the local medical personnel. Meanwhile, the French president, Jacques Chirac, urges the international community to take military action to protect the enclaves. He claims it's no longer a question of retaking Srebrenica, but more of protecting Zeppa and Garajde. His European and US counterparts are sceptical. That evening, MSF's medical coordinator in the former Yugoslavia runs into a French colonel and two military men at a hotel on the Serbian border. While she's stuck there waiting for clearance for an aid convoy, the officers are trying to meet General Mladic, the commander of Bosnian Serb forces. What they tell her confirms the rumours that an operation is underway by the Bosnian Serbs to take over all of the enclaves. If you had any doubts about the amount of planning for this operation, you won't have any now, she writes to the programme managers the next day. On the 16th of July, MSF Belgrade send their programme managers an update on the people who fled Srebrenica on foot five days ago. Breaking news. A large influx, said to be around 4,000 of refugees, is en route. Apparently, Bosnian fighters opened a corridor allowing some of the disappeared to enter the Tuzla area. We will confirm tomorrow morning. For the time being, we have no access to this region. This group of refugees arriving in Tuzla are just the tip of a long chain of people. As thousands more make it out of the forest to MSF Holland's medical posts, the full horror of what they've been through becomes known. Like the women and children who arrived in the buses, they too report witnessing atrocities by the Bosnian Serb forces. 
The executive director of MSF Holland, Jacques de Miliano, travels to Tuzla to hear these terrible stories for himself. The day after on Thursday, it was only about the safety of Dutch bed. No concern, not of the press, not of the Dutch population, about the protection of the people there. At the same time, we got from the field very alarming details of what was happening on the separation men and women, etc. So I was puzzled that day. And on Friday, in principle, I had my holidays planned to, to go to the south with my family. And that Friday night, I, I was in bed and I couldn't sleep. And I said, it's not possible. I'm not going on holiday when this happens. And so I had a very negative, strong feeling about the situation there. So I called Freek, who is responsible for the uh, for the ticketing in MSF. And I called him in, uh, at three o'clock in the night in, uh, out of his bed. I said, Freek, I need a ticket. I want to go to, to Tuzla. And there I, I met the women who arrived from uh, Sibernitsa with, with their children and they have this horrifying account about the, the separation. They, they talked about atrocities they had seen on men, uh, the way they were treated by, by the Serbs. They all had their personal stories and stories which, let's say, think about, okay, here is the starting of a massacre. Okay, we had not all the events, but there were enough stories to give me the impression that we witness here a systematic elimination of the man. So there I witnessed, let's say, the non-protection of the population of Sibrenica. On his return to Holland, Jacques held a press conference. In that press conference, I thought what I have heard from mainly from the women, and that was a situation of non-protection. What was shocking is what that the media, they only wanted to know if MSF was against or in favor of Dutch bet. And I had to say, no, it's not about against or in favor of Dutch bet. It's about the non-protection of the civil population. But when I talked about the, that people were not protected. So they said, okay, so Dutch Bet didn't do its job, so you're against Dutch Bet. So it was a, a huge emotional situation in the Netherlands and also in the way the press uh, translated these emotions in that press conference towards me. So the real message, I couldn't get it across. So th- at the end of the day, the message was MSF is blaming uh, Dutch Bet. And also in MSF, it was difficult because after this press conference, MSF got a, a lot of donors who called MSF very angry because eh, why MSF is shaming Dutch better. And so in MSF, people at the communication department, they were also very scared about eh, MSF is going to lose donors, etc. So I felt at, in that period or in that week, let's say, what followed quite isolated because the translation was in, in other terms than in terms of protection. Only Jan Pronk, the Minister for Development Cooperation in Holland, shared MSF's view. Eyewitness accounts are clearly the most powerful way of conveying to the world the horror of what's happening in eastern Bosnia. 
But from the beginning of MSF's presence in the region, there's been a policy of shielding the teams inside the enclaves. Stefan Oberreit is the coordinator at MSF Belgrade. The policy had been that we shouldn't have our staff in the enclave talk directly to the press for security reasons, obviously, and also because they had a, a lot of work and they were a very limited team. So we preferred to have HQ talk to the press or the coordination team in, in Belgrade, essentially myself. And um, during the attack on Srebrenica, I mean, I did 100 interviews in a matter of a few days, and it was always a question whether it would have been better that uh, Christina, the, the team leader, would have done them because she was in the middle of the enclave and of course for the press it would have worked better or find a ways of her practically doing a press conference through HF radio but at the end of the day we decided against this for again security reason time management for her and the situation but the impact would have been of course much stronger if Christina had been able to make interviews from the enclaves on the attack so there will always be a lingering question whether it would have changed anything um, in terms of uh, the impact of the press? I don't think so at this stage, but uh, yeah, there's always difficult questions in those circumstances. Stefan's predecessor, Eric Stobarts, remembers a time when he went against this policy. The rule was not to speak, because at the time you spoke, you got shelling. That was the logic. It was as directly correlated. The only moment we broke the rule was during the siege of Gorash Day, when we had two individuals stuck inside, no way out, and the guys were losing it. There was no way they could work. It was absolutely mad. They were living with dead bodies around. The bodies couldn't. It was an absolutely extreme situation. Where I broke the rule, I took the decision to break the rule, in despite of what H. Courses thought, called Christiana Armenpour in, in Sarajevo, she was covering Bosnia at the time, and gave uh, a direct access to Olivier, who spoke to the media. Sadly, Christiana Armenpour was not the one to do the interview. She delegated to someone. They went live, it was a live interview, went live on CNN for about an hour, and that journalist was so opportunistic and broke all the conditions that we used it. And she kept asking military questions. Where are the troops? Do you see the sub? Well, we said, please talk about the humanitarian situation, medical. We, they have plenty of things to say, telling stories, compelling stories. I call Atlanta and saying, you know, threatening with a legal action, which totally, without bypassing completely, it's called just bluffing completely. And they managed to withdraw that, you know, live 15 minutes every time, having Olivier speaking about how the troops were approaching and they were panicking that they would be killed and all that kind of... They, they... Ah, so that was our experience when we broke the rule. So I tell you, breaking the rule again, and I would have probably done like Stefan, I would have probably asked Christina and Dana not to speak because we knew that it could actually go very, very wrong. But there are other mechanisms in place at MSF to get these important first-hand accounts into the media. For example, there's a deal with the French paper Liberation, whereby they're allowed to publish extracts from radio messages between the MSF teams in Belgrade and Srebrenica. But like many processes, these aren't always foolproof. On the 14th of July, MSF sends radio messages from Christina Schmitz to Liberation without her permission. Two days later, the MSF France programme manager writes to MSF Belgrade to clarify the correct practice. 
We must ask Christina for her opinion when we give the press information about her personal reactions. We made a mistake regarding the Liberation article. The information provided to the press by Paris is screened on the basis of potential risks for the field team. The next day, there's another slip-up. The team still in Potichari reports. Sitrep, Monday 17th of July. Somehow, some journalists managed to get the telephone number of the UN compound and start to harass us with requests for interviews. Since we don't have our own appropriate communication means, and since interviews might endanger our evacuation, we refer everybody to Belgrade. That evening of the 17th of July, the last patients are evacuated from Potichari by the International Committee of the Red Cross. MSF announces the evacuation in a press release. Christina and Daniel remain inside the enclave for another four days. They finally leave with the last convoy of Blue Helmet peacekeepers. Stefan Oberreit again. As we tried to sort of um, start discussing their evacuation, basically the team wanted to stay with 17 other staff or the staff family. And um, it was quite complicated because the Bosnian Serbs and then the Croats would not allow our team to come out with Bosnians. They said the two international can go. Christina was German. Uh, Daniel was Australian. So we had this discussion whether the, uh, Christina and Daniel should leave and uh, Christina and Daniel were adamant about staying with the team. She didn't want to let go of our staff and have them being taken by the buses Serbian authorities, Croatian authorities still refused to let our team go with our Bosnian staff. And it's really at the last minute when the Blue Helmet themselves were packing to leave Porochari, so there was going to be nobody left, that um, we got the authorization from Bosnian Serbs, Serbs as well, and, and Croatia, that uh, we could drive to Zagreb with our cars and our staff. So there was... Um, Quite something, because the three cars had been in the enclaves and, and they were in pretty bad shape. And it was just uh, 19 people packed on the, onto those cars. And they arrived in uh, Zagreb very late at night. We booked the hotel rooms. But it was, of course, then time for debriefing uh, Christina and, and Daniel and, uh, and our staff and uh, start working on what MSF had to say, considering this horrible situation in Srebrenica. Although Christina and Daniel are safely out of Srebrenica, many of the local hospital team are still missing. In Tuzla, MSF continues to provide medical care to the 20,000 refugees camped in and around the airport. They also set up in the community centres and schools in the region. With more and more shocking eyewitness accounts from the Bosnian Muslims who fled Srebrenica, the outside world starts to realise a horrifying truth that mass killings may have taken place on European soil. The question now is, who should be held responsible? Next time on MSF Speaking Out, Srebrenica, as July 1995 goes down in history as one of the deadliest months of the Bosnian War, the focus shifts to the international community. Where does the responsibility lie for the inaction the whole Dutch military system apparently was focused on the safety of Dutch bed. And so there was no countervailing power, not from parliament, not from prime minister. And can the other enclaves be saved? 
MSF Speaking Out Srebrenica podcast is based on an original MSF study called MSF and Srebrenica 1993-2003, written by Laurence Binet. It's part of the Speaking Out Case Studies series, a project by MSF International. This podcast series is produced and mixed by Andrea Rangecroft. Editorial direction is from Nancy Barrett, Martin Solinier, and Sandy McKee. The narrator is Nick Owen. The extracts are read by Daniela Bellos-Stag and Matthew Wade. Music is by Lost Harmonies and Peter Sandberg. A special thanks to Dr. Jacques D'Emiliano, Stefan Oberreit, and Eric Stobartz. To read the full report and discover other case studies, please go to our website, msf.org speakingout. Thanks for listening. <laughs>